We are back in Hebrews after having a guest preacher last week. We're continuing our series and, uh, and remembering that theme that Jesus is better. The, the Hebrews, uh, this group of uh, Jewish followers of Jesus, are experiencing great difficulty. They have had their uh, belongings plundered because they're Christians. They have been uh, put in a position where they have not yet suffered to the point of death, but that may come. And, uh, and they are considering turning back to the old system, to back to Judaism, because things are not going uh, as they had hoped. And the writer of this letter, this sermon, some call a sermon letter, is, is saying Jesus is better, and it is wrong to turn back. And, and here are all the reasons that you shouldn't. And so here we continue with that theme, and we find this idea of better, even that word used multiple times in this passage, or more excellent than, particularly in verse 6. But it also introduces this idea of the covenant. It's a better covenant. And then there is a quote in verses 8 through 12 from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. This is actually the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And, and it is this description of what is described as the new covenant. Some of you, uh, we have uh, students in our church who go to Covenant High School. My kids go to Covenant College. I went to Covenant Seminary. What is, the, what is Covenant? I mean, we don't, we don't necessarily talk about the details of that. It is here, and it is really significant. And I would actually say that uh, as, 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 a, as a pastor who our, our theology could be described as Covenant theology as a church, that this is a really significant point. And this gives us opportunity to, to look at some of that big picture of what covenant is. Uh, and we'll, we'll repeat some of the things that we did in Sunday school in the fall, which was all about the different covenants that God has made with his people. But uh, it is really a frame by which we can understand the rest of Scripture. So that it, it actually helps us understand Scripture better. Being, being a part of this church, I've talked about this before, We've been here now 10 years. It was actually 10 years ago this week that we moved here. And one of the things that we have loved about being a Redeemer and Fountain Square Prez and, uh, and connected to a lot of artists and the appreciation of art. And, uh, and I actually invite you, I, I'm going to be unfortunately leaving very quickly after the service to go to the funeral, um, which is why I'm dressed up. I don't normally uh, tuck my shirt in, do I? But uh, here I am. Uh, but I do invite you, our office space, uh, which if you head straight back down the hall and go up the stairs, is our office space. And uh, Quincy, who made these Linton liturgical art pieces a number of years ago, has uh, let us borrow a good bit of art. And so I'm, it's, he, we put it in this week. It's fun to have uh, art in there. But I, I, I love uh, and I have appreciated art in the way that it's displayed beauty, both of, of God and other people. And, uh, and even before that, though, I knew... That the frame that you pick for a piece of art, whether it's a photograph or a painting or whatever it might be, matters uh, tremendously. It draws your eye to particular parts of the art. And, and we know that so much so that we're maybe familiar with the idea of the framing effect. So how you frame a particular topic uh, determines the way that you actually see it or think about it. Um, so to kind of marry the two, the art and the framing effect, there, there was a study done a number of years ago that uh, had the subjects look at art, and all of the art was from the Modern Museum of Art, MoMA, in New York City, uh, arguably the, the most significant modern art museum in our country. And, um, 
Uh, if you think it's somewhere else, then you know, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's prestigious, right? And so they put this art before them, and they give a group, and they say, this art is from the MoMA, and this art is from an adult education center. And they measured, actually with an fMRI, uh, the, the way that their brain processed whether it was beautiful or good. I'm, I'm about to explain all the ways in which that works. I'm not going to do that. So they, uh, the, the results were very clear, though, that the art that they thought that was framed as being from MoMA, they received as, as better, as more beautiful, more pleasing. And the art that was framed, uh, that they were told was from Adult Education Center, they, they, they did not appreciate as much, right? And the, 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 the point that the study teaches all of us is that we do this in all kinds of ways. The way in which things are framed affects the way in which we see it. And, and I think one of the reasons we did this Sunday school last fall, this look at the covenants, is there is a refrain throughout Scripture, this framing of the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, that God is a covenant God, that this idea of him entering into covenants, which I'll explain a little bit more uh, in a second, is central to the way that he works throughout history. And, and a covenant is essentially this agreement that was made between a king and the king's vassals. That was what happened in the ancient Near East. And so, because God met his people where they were in ways that they could understand, this is the framework that he used to enter into a relationship with his people. So he didn't uh, show up and uh, say, hey, Abram, I'm going to be like uh, an IT CEO, and you're going to be like uh, a coder, right? Because Abram wouldn't have known what IT or coding is, right? So he, he meets them where they are in ways that they could understand, and, and the things that they could understand were these agreements made between kings and vassals. And in the ancient Near East, these often, they came with all of the responsibility laying on the vassals, and they had to get it right, or the king would be upset. And yet what we find in the Old Testament is God being the one who enters into them in order to be in relationship with his people, and he takes on the responsibility. We could spend, there, there are a number of ways that this sermon could go in which we could spend more time on everything that we talk about. I'm trying to get a big picture here, right? So he enters into these relationships, these covenants, beginning actually with Adam, which theologians call a covenant of works, where it was very clear that Adam and Eve just had uh, some things that they had to do. It was really actually pretty simple. Don't eat of this one tree. And they failed, Right? So then he enters into covenants of grace with his people, where he is the one taking the responsibility. And there is, in some sense, a, uh, a covenant with Noah, and then with Abram, with Moses, with David, and then now the new, the new covenant that is spoken of and promised in Jeremiah 31 that is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is better. He is the mediator of this new and better covenant, verse 6. And so... The, the, the reality, though, that we, this framework that is helpful for us to understand is that the covenant is all about God saying, I want to be in relationship with you. The whole scripture is about the story of the creator God saying, I want to be in relationship with you. And there is a refrain that we find from Genesis. Actually, for the first time, the actual words happen in Genesis 17, verse 8 all the way to the second to last chapter 
of the Bible, Revelation 21, this wording of I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it happens again and again. It is a refrain that points to God being a relational God. You may have heard the idea that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, there's a, a, a level on which it could be a, it, it is a religion. But it is, a, it is about relationship with the creator. That that is how God has interacted with the world and with his people. That he wants that relationship. It is central to Christianity. And it is what is unique about Christianity and unique about what Jesus uh, does in this world, that I want to be in relationship with my people. It is central. It is the frame by which we understand all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. So as we look at this idea of new, and we find this quote in the New Testament, in Hebrews, this quote from the Old Testament, we see how understanding it all together is incredibly important. That we would make a huge mistake if we said, you know what, I'm just a New Testament guy, and, uh, and I don't really need to think about the old. No, it all fits. It's all one story. But within that, in the promise of this new covenant, is, is God saying, well, there is something better about the way that I'm working now. Jesus is better. And so we're going to find here in this new covenant that there is both continuity and discontinuity with the old. Continuity and discontinuity. Those are the two points this morning. Uh, let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here, that we would experience you in relationship with you in, in new and greater ways, today and every day, Lord. May that happen by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Continuity. We're here in the New Testament. We see this reference to the Old Testament. We talk about this a lot. Uh, this is all one story. It, it, it's really uh, Old Testament and newer Testament, not quite as Old Testament. I mean, it, it's quite old. Uh, for us, by the way, right? So, uh, but it's, it's part one and part two. And, and we need them to understand one another. We, we wouldn't read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which is the last book, the seventh book, uh, alone without having read the first six or those last movies without seeing the first six. We wouldn't understand it. And, and the same is true. We wouldn't actually fully understand or have finished the first six books if we didn't read the last one. They all fit together. It's all one story. And this is the way that every TV show is happening now, right? Like you don't get any, con I've talked about this before, you don't get any conclusion at the end of a whole season, right? It's just like pointing to one more season. Uh, you need it all together to understand what's going on. Well, that's true here uh, in the word of God, that it is all one story and we, we need it together. And there is this great continuity, even as we do find differences, which we'll talk about in a moment, there is continuity, starting with God himself. He is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God, James 1, 17 tells us, whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Malachi 3, 6, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. We see the same idea in Psalm 102 and Numbers 23, that God is this God who continues to be the same. And we see many of the ways in which he's working. He is providing ways, even though those ways differ a little bit. He is a God who seeks relationship. He is a God who provides opportunity to be in relationship with him, to experience redemption, to experience 
forgiveness of sin, for us to be able to overcome our, our own brokenness and shortcomings. He is a God who provides way for us to be in relationship with him. He is essentially a relational God. We talk about this in the Old Testament when we find the word the Lord. It is most often Yahweh, which is this personal name for God, that God who says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the Old Testament God. And he is the same God in the New Testament. So, you know, that, that common idea of God of the Old Testament, wrath and, uh, and, and anger, and God of the New Testament is love and grace. And, and they're like two different gods, right? Which is a complete misunderstanding and misreading of both the Old and the New Testament. Because here's the truth. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a God of law and wrath. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a God of love and grace. And those two things absolutely fit together throughout the whole story. So that is this idea of God being a God of the law, which was understood as the Torah. And so when we, the Torah, those first few books of the Bible, uh, written by Moses, giving an account of creation through the uh, different, different covenants, Noah, Abram, Moses, who has given the law, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the direction to set up the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, which is this place where they met with God, and the priest went in and made sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. We've been talking about this through Hebrews, right? Leviticus 16, the high priest goes in and he makes sacrifices for the people of God that they might be forgiven of their sins. And so in weeks past, we've looked at Jesus being the better high priest, that better mediator between us and God, providing for us that we might have relationship with him. But it's all about relationship with him. But as we see the, this, this promise that the, the old wasn't sufficient, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And there's even a reference to, uh, to, to Moses in verse 5 and, and this focus on the law of God that is laid out that the people are supposed to follow, right? And, and there is a continuity. The law still matters. So the law doesn't go away. There's a significant change in the, the, the purpose of the law and the function of the law. But it, is, it still matters. It is actually, we're told, again, from this quote from Jeremiah 31, that it is put in their minds. That is his people. It's put in their minds, and it is written on their hearts. So it still matters. It's experienced in a different way. It has a different function, but it, is, it still matters. It is still at play. It, essentially, there is a standard that we are called as people to live up to. Now, the story of the gospel, the thing that we know is whatever that standard is, whether it is the Bible or whether it's a standard that we create for ourselves, or a standard that somebody else outside of us creates, we never live up to it. Even if it's a standard that we set for ourselves, because we struggle within ourselves to, to live up even to the things that we want to do, right? The, Dan talked uh, earlier about the fact that Paul says in Romans 7, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do. This is a struggle within each and every one of us. And so we, we find that he's saying it matters, but we experience it in a different way. There is some continuity there. It does continue to exist. We, we find that there is a need for a mediator. These first five verses here talk about Jesus being the better mediator. His ministry is better. And 
And we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But there, there is a recognition that as the great high priest, there continues to be a need for the mediator. If, if we don't live up to the law, which continues to matter, though in different ways, uh, then what do we do about that? How do we experience forgiveness of sins? How do we experience right relationship with our creator, with our God? Well, he's given us a mediator. In the Old Testament, it was the high priest. That was necessary. They went, they regularly made sacrifices in the tabernacle or in the temple when it was built. But now the mediator is Jesus. So there is still a need for the mediator. We're going to see in a moment how he's better, but, but redemption is still necessary. And, and the Hebrews here at this time, they, they didn't neglect that fact. They continued to recognize that they fell short and needed a mediator. And, and we're called and invited into that same reality, to, to the fact that as we think about this description of the things going on uh, in the Old Covenant, verses 1 through 3, talk about the high priest. Uh, in verse 2, we see that there is a true tent, and, and it's a reference to the tabernacle that was given to Moses in that covenant with him when he, on the mountain, uh, got a, a picture of what the tabernacle should look like, and then he went down and he had them build it, right? This tent that went with them, that, that displayed the presence of God. There was also a place where they could experience the sacrifices and forgiveness. This was all something that the original readers of, of, and hearers of Hebrews would have understood, and so we need a little bit to get into that world, right? Like they were steeped in this idea that they needed that, that mediator. Now, we, we find ourselves in a, a different place where sometimes we think, I'm not sure I, I need that. Or I, I think I'll find it in different ways. But we're invited into this place continually in Scripture. Of I'll give this quote that I've given multiple times from Tim Keller, Jack Miller, from a number of people, is that we are, the gospel is, that we are more sinful and depraved than we ever dared believe. And that doesn't feel very good, right? And, and yet it's a, a continual reminder, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And, and those two things have to fit together. We have to understand both of those things without recognizing our, our faults, our the ways in which we don't live up to, to God and his call in our lives, then we don't recognize his love and his grace uh, in our lives. So we, we, we sit with that, but we know that it comes with incredible promises that we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared believe. That's going to get in a moment to the, the discontinuity. But, but we find here that this old covenant, and, and even the things that still matter today, it, it, it was not sufficient as it, is, as it existed. It wasn't sufficient. And so for the Hebrews to consider going back to that system, the, the writer here is saying, no, no, you're, you're, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the blessings of God in Jesus who is better. Because it is not going to work for you. We see in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, the indication is it clearly was. Because if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. It carried with it faults. And so there was a need for something better, this new one. And so, again, we, we've talked about this before as well. It is not our temptation. Uh, my, my assumption is that there's, I don't know everybody uh, deeply, but my, my guess is there's not anybody in here that is tempted to turn back 
to the Levitical priesthood uh, for your hope, right? But there are all kinds of other things that we're tempted to turn to, things that are not sufficient. One might be just to dismiss our need at all. I don't have need. I don't need a mediator. There's no standard to which I haven't lived up. It doesn't matter. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this is where you find yourself. This all just seems a little crazy. I don't need that. But my, uh, my challenge is that I, that I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's, there's something that we feel that is lacking. There's some, no, no matter, again, what our standard might be, we find ourselves in a place where something is not quite right. That, that deep down, we, we know that that is true, that it, that it gnaws at us. And, and so we, we might just dismiss it and think about it. But actually what is more prevalent whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is to distract yourself, to not even think about it, to not think about the need or or what might address the need. I mean, we are incredibly good at this. We live in a really, really busy culture. So we can can distract ourselves with work or with relationships or there's a a few ways in which we can entertain ourselves uh, on uh, the interwebs or streaming services or all, like I had to delete Instagram from my phone because I could just find myself scrolling through the reels. I've never gotten TikTok and I understand reels is basically like TikTok three months later. Um, And it's just these little short videos that don't really have a lot of value. uh, And I found myself just like scrolling through and they were entertaining. And some of them are really funny, right? Uh, And yet, when I do that, I'm not thinking about anything of significance, right? And that's just like one example of the many ways in which we just find to distract ourselves. When things get difficult, when we feel that things are hard, what do we do? We often turn to entertainment. We, we, we turn to things to, to numb us. And, and it might be even darker things like uh, alcohol or uh, different substances. There, there are all kinds of things in which we with which we distract ourselves. Some, some of them are good, like jobs and family and even uh, entertainment. Like there's, there's good in that, right? But when it becomes this thing just to distract us from our need or even thinking about whether we have need or not, uh, it, is, uh, it is dangerous. But the other thing that we do is we just, we just seek to justify ourselves. We think that uh, the answer is that I, I'm just gonna be good enough, I'm gonna do the right things, I'm gonna hold the right positions, uh, I'm going to serve in the right way or, uh, you know, post the right things. And we feel like those kind of things are, are, they justify us. They take care of our need. But what scripture tells us again and again is none of that is sufficient. But what is sufficient is Jesus. And that's where this discontinuity comes in. What's different about the new covenant? Well, the main thing is that it's Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is at the center of the new covenant. So verses one through five here are talking about him. They're talking about his better ministry, that he is now the one who is that high priest. We know from previous chapters that that is Jesus. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high in heaven. This is, he is at the right hand of God. This is Jesus at the right hand of God in his presence. And, and it, it's no longer the, the, the old covenant where there was this kind of described as a thin place between the tabernacle or the temple and God in heaven. And heaven, by the way, as, as a reminder, is a description of where God is. It's 
not these clouds and just this place that we hope to get to in the end. It is where God is. And there's a picture of heaven coming to earth in Jesus. But that thin place that existed in the tabernacle and in the temple, we now find that that place uh, that Jesus isn't, the mediator is no longer just in that thin place. He's actually in the presence of God, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty now. And we're, we're just a few weeks away from celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection. But this is something that we have celebrated. We celebrate on some level every single week that Jesus rose from the dead. And he, right now, at this very moment, in his body, resurrected body, sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, in the true place, not just this shadow uh, of what is to come, but actually in the presence of God. That's where he is now, the real thing, doing this ministry of mediation, of work. He is in the presence of God. And this matters for you and me, and it is happening now. And he's saying, this is the true ultimate thing, the true tent, verse 2, that the Lord set up, not man, not the temple that man built. But this is, the, this is what the other was looking to. And, and to be clear here, this idea of the shadow of something to come, don't get this confused with, with Plato that would say the shadows on the cave uh, were not really real and they just kind of alluded to something else. No, this is something real and true and that there's a connection through Jesus to both of them. Plato wouldn't allow for that. Jesus being in one world and then existing in the other. That, that's not the, the way that works. We go off too many directions here. But uh, this is a reminder that all the stuff in the Old Testament, it is pointing to what is real and true, and it is Jesus. We've already seen this as he, as he tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. All the scripture, which at that point was just the Old Testament, is about me. And, and, and the preachers in Acts and Acts 8 and 10 and 18, they, they, they're talking about the scriptures. They pointed to, to Jesus. They're about him. All of that points to him. I, one of my favorite things in the whole world um, is skiing. I, I love to ski. And uh, Indianapolis is the best place that we've lived without question. Like all around, it is the best place. But I do miss uh, the access that we had to skiing when we lived in Denver. And we got to teach our older two kids while we were there. We were at an age where we got to teach them to ski while we lived there. But Libby, our youngest, wasn't quite old enough to learn there. So when we came here and we were going to take a trip and we were going to drive out to Colorado and go skiing one spring break, we said, well, let's start her uh, so that, that she has some experience before and we'll go to Perfect North. And Perfect North, I've had, real, some, I've had some great experience at Perfect North. But it is a shadow of the mountains in the Rockies, all the places that I've skied in the Rockies, right? Like it is, it is just a, a picture of, of, of that. And, and let's say that even for the sake of the illustration, you're, you can ski really well at any of those places, right? Uh, so it's not about, well, this is better for me because I can't ski as well. No, let's just, sake of the illustration, you're, you're able to ski at all. Perfect North is a shadow pointing to something that like, the views... The snow, the terrain, the whole experience. It is just a picture of, of what it's like to ski in, in the Rockies. And, and that's, that's this picture here. Like the, the tabernacle, the temple, which were, they were amazing and they were real. And we've had great experience at Perfect North. It's great. I've loved going there. 
But that all of it is just a picture to something better. And that thing that is better is Jesus at the right hand of the Father so that we might have relationship with him. Mediating so that we might have what we find in verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This, this promise of ultimate and eternal forgiveness. This, this promise that there didn't need to be a high priest every year going into the Holy of Holies making sacrifice for the people, for themselves and for the people. It was, it was done. It was done through Jesus that he would be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. That is the beautiful Truth, that is part of these amazing promises. The promises with the new covenant are better, verse seven. The, old, the new covenant is better since it is enacted on better promises. And that's, that's just the whole story of Jesus and the gospel. The fact that he's in heaven now mediating for you and me, interceding, we looked at a few weeks ago, interceding for us right now. He cares about each of us right now. We see that this, all of this matters for us. There is this difference for us, that what matters for us is that we have now the law given to us in a way that it's written on our hearts, it's put in our minds. And there's a lot of mystery here. There's, there's certainly places where in the Old Testament where they delighted in the law of God in ways that are really challenging. I mean, read Psalm 119 or Psalm 19 and see David rejoicing in the law, the joy that he had in the law. There's certainly something there, but there's something different happening here. An idea of the law being in our midst rather than just set before us. And and there is also a sense in which there is is a a, a greater focus here on us as individuals. The, The law put on your minds, written on our hearts. There's something about God saying, I care about you and you and you. And all of your particularity here is the beauty of truth that I'm offering to you. Now, he's not, I regularly have to, I think, in, in our hyper-individualistic culture, I'm trying to remind us, God is a corporate God. He cares about us as a people. He cares about us as individuals as, and as a people corporately the same amount. Those cannot be separated from one another. And verse 8 tells us that he, he's dealing with us as the, the tribe of Judah He's dealing with Israel. He's dealing with the people of God, but he also cares about us as individuals. In all of our particularity, we matter to him. Yes, as a part of his people, but, but also uh, as individuals. And, and then we find that we all have the same access to him. This is, this is different than what is before. So in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Does this mean that, uh, that you don't need teachers or, or, or preachers, that, that it's not helpful to read books about who Jesus is and, and that would open the scriptures up to us? I don't think that's what it's saying at all. It's saying that we all have the same access. It, we're not, it doesn't require us to have uh, a priest, an earthly priest, to go before us. No, it's saying that we all have access to the Father in the same way because we are united to Jesus who is now at the right hand of the Father. Every single one of us has that access, can understand the gospel, can experience his forgiveness. That, that is this beautiful picture. And, and so we find the truth is opened and revealed to us in powerful, powerful ways. The truth of the law, the mystery of it. Ephesians 3 is open to us 
in new and beautiful ways through Jesus. And there's certainly a sense in which this is, is, is true here and now. Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And a sense in which it is not yet completely fulfilled. That, that idea of the already, not yet. We're, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do every week. And, 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 and the words of institution that we call them from 1 Corinthians 11, based on what Jesus said at the Last Supper, is that as I pour the wine and say, this is the blood of the new covenant. And it is an inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus. And yet there's a sense in which when Jesus returns, it will be absolutely completely fulfilled. So Revelation 21, that last picture of I will be your God and you will be my people is God dwelling with his people. It's, it's a, the language is twisted a little bit, not twisted, just changed a little bit. He's going to dwell with us. We're going to dwell with him in a new and powerful way. And there will be no more crying or pain or death anymore. We're faced with death. Even today, as, as some of us are about to go to Peter Kobe's funeral, yet the promise is that that is done away with and all of the brokenness of this world is done away with, that our sin is done away with. We won't even experience the presence of it anymore. Those are the promises because of what Jesus does as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray.